We will continue our reading through Genesis, <clears throat> and we're up to chapter 29 and verse 15. Jacob has fled from his brother Esau, rightly fearing Esau's wrath, and has arrived in Haran, the home of his uncle. And so we pick up the reading at verse 15. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you, not, should you serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak. But Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for her. And he said, I read that. And Laban said, no, I'm going to back up. Jacob loved her. And he said, I will serve you seven years for her. Uh, for your daughter, for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed to him but seven days, but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so. And completed her week, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went in to Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. We're going to read two passages of scripture related to the sermon. Uh, I'll explain why they're not exactly the text for the sermon, but they are definitely related to it, basis for it. But let's pray before we read. Lord, we have read your word and have seen in the case of Jacob and his family, 
that uh, you certainly did not save Jacob because he was a godly man, that you saved him by grace and changed him through his life. And so we look to you, Lord, now as we continue to read your word, praying that the Holy Spirit would use it to instruct us, to build us up in the faith, to build us up in our obedience to you. And by these means, bless your holy name and bless your people gathered here and hearing your word together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Reading first from Psalm 78. It's a long psalm. We'll just read the first eight verses. <clears throat> Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your heart to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed law, a law in Israel when he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them and the children yet unborn and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful. And then the psalm goes on to describe the many rebellions of the northern tribes, later known as Israel, but ends by giving thanks to God for choosing David to be the shepherd of his people. And of course, David is a picture and forerunner of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the other passage I want to read is Ephesians 6 and just four verses. Children, children, you listening? Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land. Fathers, listen up, fathers. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. May God bless us and glorify himself through the word that we have read. <clears throat> Priscilla and I love being part of this congregation. It just delights us to see the families. This is no slight to the single people, but it delights us to see the families and all the children that God has granted to this congregation. What a blessing from God. 
That's why it never bothers me when children cry out in church because it says they're here. The children are here. And uh, that's, thank God for it. But it's also a stewardship from God and lays a great responsibility upon us. Sermon title is Fathers Train Your Children in the Gospel, Not Phariseeism. But uh, this certainly applies to mothers also. It applies to grandparents to the extent that they are able to exert an influence. And it applies to all of you in the congregation uh, because when we have received children into the church by baptism, we have admonished you that you have a responsibility for the covenant children of this church and to their parents uh, to help them in the raising of their children. So this may sound like a sermon to fathers, but it's not. In fact, if anybody can just kind of sit as, as an outsider and listen, it's the children. <laughs> All right. Secondly, just as a warning, this is a topical sermon taken from a series I did years ago. Uh, so it's not going to take passages and work through them uh, carefully. Why the second, why the fifth commandment? We're still in introduction. Why the fifth commandment? It's the purpose of telling children to honor their father and their mother, not just children either, telling us to honor our fathers and our mothers. Is that meant to provide parents with uh, little slaves serving them? <laughs> Somebody said yes. <laughs> you, you've got to take the course over again. Uh, no, it is not to provide slaves for tyrants. It is to instill in children, the children of Christian parents in particular, a respect for their parents that will make it possible for them to receive from their parents life-giving, life-preserving instruction and training. Because the alternative is really unthinkable. Who is responsible before God for educating and training Christian children? No, I'm not talking about training them in reading, science, mathematics, history, grammar. They need to learn these things. But God's truth, who God is, what God has done, what God calls us to be and to do. Is that the school's job? Even a Christian school? Well, a Christian school might play a role in that, but it's not their job primarily. <clears throat> Sunday school, catechism class, they're a help. But the responsibility is put by God squarely on parents. Now, fathers are singled out in Ephesians. Because of the family structure ordained by God, the father is the head of the family. <coughs> but it's clear from many scriptures that the father and the mother together are partners in the training, teaching, and raising of their children. You see that in Proverbs 1, verse 8, where the son who's being taught by his father is told, don't forget your father's teaching, don't forget your mother's teaching. <coughs> This is true, clear back to the beginning. Uh, families did not evolve 
God created man and men, man and woman upon the earth, created them to be a family, ordained the family as the foundational unit of human society from the beginning. God charges parents explicitly in his covenant word. Uh, you can think of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. I'm going to drop my Bible on the floor. That's a poem. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. We heard that already, didn't we? And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in the house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. That is throughout the day and all the teachable moments that arise in the day. That's the job of parents. Uh, we read Psalm 78. Let's review again the important points there. That there is this generation by generation by generation passing of truths that God intends for parents to teach their children. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord, his might, the wonders he has done. He commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and rise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Generation by generation by generation, teach your children. This is how God intended his covenant people to remain faithful to him, generation by generation. And Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not embitter your children or exasperate your children, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Uh, when you parents presented your children for baptism, you made solemn vows to the Lord to be diligent in doing this very thing. <coughs> This has always been of vital importance throughout history. But if anything, it is becoming more crucial today. There's a great attack by the dragon, the enemy of God, and the enemy of God's people focusing in our day on the destruction of families. And especially the destruction of children. Don't need to say any more about that. Neglecting your duty in this matter, mom and dad, leaving it to others could be fatal to your children. So, we tend, we tend to worry most that our children will or could fall prey to the seductions of the flesh to turn aside from the way of the Lord into wicked, sinful behavior and rebellion. And so we tend to focus on that danger in our childbearing. But this morning I want to focus on a different danger, the danger of raising 
little Pharisees. So three points. The dangerous tendency to moralism. Secondly, our goal in training, Christian training. And thirdly, the centrality of the gospel in all Christian training. So point number one, there is a dangerous tendency <clears throat> to moralism. You could try this experiment with your children, but if they're listening, it, it won't work because they'll learn the lesson now. <clears throat> but I've found over the years, it's kind of shocking at first, I've found over the years that you can ask almost any child who's grown up in church and Sunday school, who goes to heaven? And what do you think the answer often is? Good people. What must you do to go to heaven? Be good. Now, if that's not true of your children, praise the Lord. <laughs> that's a wonderful thing. But is this the message of the Bible? No. <laughs> but it is often the subtle message of Bible storybooks, which focus on the quote-unquote heroes of the faith as if to say, be like Abraham. Be like David. I'm not sure which part of being like David. Uh, be like Daniel, turning the Bible history into moral lessons, which if we take them to heart and try our best, then we may go to heaven. That is not the message of the Bible. Where do children get this idea? Well... It comes naturally to proud little hearts. Hmm? You know the kids I'm talking about, self-righteous little tattletales. <laughs> I would never do that. But my sister, <laughs> or things like that. Now, I grant that the opposite is also another tendency of the human heart to hate the law of God and look for an opportunity to, to get away with disobeying it. But we're focusing on moralism this morning. It comes naturally to little hearts, because little hearts came into the world as the children of Adam and Eve fallen in sin. Not only that, it's all too easy for parents to teach moralism without realizing that you're doing it. We'll talk about that in a moment. What is the goal of all Christian training? Now you might think of the ethnic slur here, trigger warning. You might think of the Jewish mother who says, Ah, my son the doctor. That's all her joy, the success of her son. Is that our goal for our children? that they be successful in the eyes of the world and reflect well on us, their parents. 
Well, it's not bad if that happens. If God has given your children gifts and using those gifts in a righteous way results in prosperity and reflects well on you, well, give thanks to God. But that's not the goal. What is the goal? The great goal of parenting is God's great goal in sending his beloved son into the world. What did, Joseph, what did the angel say to Joseph about naming Jesus? Name him Jesus, <clears throat> which is the English version of Yeshua, which is the Aramaic version of Joshua, which means Yahweh is Savior. Name him Jesus. <coughs> Excuse me. For he will save his people from their sins. Not... He will show them how to save themselves by being good. Christ did not come into the world to show us, primarily to show us how to be good. But to show us in his saving work how to be saved, how to become the true children of God. And in that new relationship with God, learn to be good. So the grace of the God, point number three, the grace of the gospel must be at the heart of all Christian teaching, training. I wanna, this is the application point. There are going to be four points, four points of application. First, keep the gospel at the center of your training. And by training, I mean all of your interactions with your children, the training. You could say keep the gospel at the center of your life together. But keep the gospel at the center of your training. That is the clear basis for moral conduct. Now there's a chicken and egg question, you know. Which comes first, salvation or obedience? I hope you know the right answer. Salvation comes before real obedience. Pharisees were good at outward obedience but not from the heart and not for the right reason. Salvation or obedience? Pharisees failed to see the reality and the depth of their sin. And so it was easy for them, being blind to their sin, to be self-righteous, to condemn other people for their sins, even to condemn Jesus for loving sinful people and they stood condemned by Jesus so keep it straight we read Psalm 78 let's get it again part of Psalm 78 <clears throat> we can jump in the end of verse 5 and note something important so fathers are to teach their children that the next generation might know them, that is, all that God has done, the children yet to be born, and arise to tell them to their children, so that, there's a so that, and there are four purposes set forth here, so that they should set their hope in God, and not forget the works of God, number three, keep the commandments of God, Number four, not be like their fathers. 
You see that order, don't you? Set their hope in God, not forget the works of God. So the focus is on God, who he is, what he has done, his mighty works, his mighty works of salvation. And then keep his commandments. And not be rebellious like the fathers of Israel were. <clears throat> Salvation. Oh, yes. We read the Ten Commandments. We read, we read the law. What was the preface to the Ten Commandments? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of slavery. I saved you. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. It's not. Listen to what I have to say here. If you successfully keep these commandments, then I will be your God and you will be my people. It's not what he says. I made you my people. I saved you from slavery in Egypt. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me, and so on. Who were they? God's chosen covenant people. Their identity as his people, his mighty deeds in saving them, that was the foundation for their life before him. To respond in love to God. And to live that love by seeking to obey his commands. Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. I can usually say it from memory, but my memory is no good anymore. But I hope we can all say it. By grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works. So no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should live by them, walk in them. But you see the order there, don't you? Grace, bringing faith, bringing salvation. No boasting on our part to God. And then, by the work of the Holy Spirit, we begin to fulfill a purpose God had in saving us, that we should live according to the good works he's outlined for us in his word. So it's the same, it's the same order, you see, that we see in Psalm 78, that we see in Exodus 20, the giving of the law. And it's true all through Scripture. The Pharisees missed it completely. But brothers and sisters, let us not miss it. And let us not fail to communicate this clearly and well to our children. Make the gospel the centerpiece of your training. 
Well, moving on from that point, love your children with gospel love, not legal love. Without realizing it, you can fall into teaching the gospel to your children with words, but at the same time teaching them Phariseeism by your conduct toward them. I didn't learn this lesson right away as a parent. I wish I had. It has grown in me over the years. But the message can be given to the children. Dad and mom love you when you are good, not when you are bad. A very dear, dear friend of mine was raised by godly parents, but her mother was not clear on this. And often, and this is a quote, could say to her daughter, well, I just can't love a little girl who acts like you. As a motivation to change behavior and be good. Of course, she did love her daughter. But what an awful message. What an awful message to give. This contradiction is confusing to children. It can generate in them <clears throat> resentment, rebellion, cynicism. It can trigger sinful passions to rebel. The gospel says, when you sin, run to God. Run to the throne of grace. Seek his mercy and grace. He promises it to you. Christ is interceding for you. Teach that to your children, not only in word, but also in action. My son, when you do wrong, you can come to me and we'll go to Jesus. If you don't, I'll come to you. We'll have a conversation and we'll go to Jesus, but with love. Thirdly, related, discipline with Christ in view. Now, we do want our children to love God and to obey his commandments. <laughs> it is proper to have high standards of character and conduct. That's good. And discipline is necessary. What does Proverbs say? Sin is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of correction will drive it far from him. Now, you can exegete rod of correction different ways. I'm not going to get into an argument on that, but it does certainly, it's, it's certainly a picture of discipline. Parental discipline can be a means of grace used by the Holy Spirit to humble and subdue a proud and rebellious heart. But it has to be done with Christ in view. We are to discipline in the context of gospel love. You may say to your child, I must correct your wrong behavior. I must correct your wrong attitude and words because God has charged me to do that. 
but also because I love you. Not because I can't stand you. You make me mad. You make me look bad. I must correct your wrong behavior because I love you. That reflects the heart of God himself, doesn't it? Hebrews chapter 12. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. He disciplines. Goes on to say, no discipline at the moment is pleasant. (laughs) But it has a very happy purpose. Talking about God's discipline of us that we might share in his holiness. That's the model we are to follow. We discipline because we love. We discipline in a way that reveals our love and points to the love of Christ, who came to save children from their sins. Finally, last application point. Exemplify in yourself humility before God, repentance, and trust in his grace. If we want our children to, let's say, keep the Sabbath holy, they better be watching us keep the Sabbath holy. If we want our children to take seriously, do not bear false witness against your neighbor, They need to see in us a refusal to gossip and backbite. You get my point. The Bible makes a big deal of teaching by example. It's throughout Paul's letters to leaders of the church to set an example. Again, Again, the problem of presenting conflicting things, which has the effect of confusing children, giving them excuses, embittering them. Well, why should I have to obey? You don't. I've known more than one parent over the years who could never allow their children to think that their parents could be wrong. Even when the wrong was right there in the faces of their children. You can't talk to me like that. But Dad, what you just... You see, it's hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy to challenge our children to repent of their sins and not repent of sins they know we're committing. The result is loss of credibility, cynicism, bitterness. We can't make mistakes or else. But Mr. Perfect is never wrong. You get the drift? When you sin in front of your child, and you do, I have. Mine are all grown and gone away. I can't sin in front of them now, but I certainly have. When you sin in front of your child or against your child, say with sinful anger, excessive wrathful discipline confess it to him confess it to her 
Humble yourself. Ask forgiveness. Don't make excuses. Well, I wouldn't have done that if you hadn't. You know better than that. The child's sin does not justify your sin. Ask forgiveness. Pray for sanctifying grace from God. You can even ask your child to pray for you that you might be a better dad, a better mother. That you need God's grace. And your child can certainly pray for you. Would you please? Genuine humility before God that expresses itself in genuine humility in life and before our children is seen by our children. And it can be a powerful lesson in the reality of your faith and the reality of God's grace in Christ. So I don't have a decent conclusion, but I'll wrap it up this way. I said this sermon is really for the whole congregation. And and we do. You know, I, I think we've got some older ladies in this, not all of them older, but we've got ladies in this congregation who really devote themselves to the well-being of our children with that library over there. And a lot of you parents and kids, you've discovered that library and are making good use of it. Uh, the elders of the church... Uh, you know, should love the children as well as the parents, and uh, in home visitations should be uh, speaking to the children, and you know, saying, you know, how can we help you to uh, grow in Christ? How can we help you to understand what we do in worship? Things like that. No long, no long list here. <laughs> uh, grandparents, uh, if you have access to your grandchildren. Uh, you know, be the Christian presence in their life if their parents have not come to the faith. If they have, just be a reinforcer of what they're seeking to teach their children. Uh, so this this is really for everybody. And uh, I think maybe if the children were listening, it was for them too. Uh, let's pray. Our Father, we confess before you that your word comes to us and it catches us with a deep realization that we have not been and really cannot be perfect parents. That the well-being, the salvation of our children does not depend on our being perfect, but on the work of your Holy Spirit. But you do use means. And we pray, O Lord, that we would Take to heart your word as it speaks to moms and dads, calling us to be faithful to our children, faithful servants of our children in training them by all the means you have appointed to come to know you, to know the mighty deeds that you have done, to hope in you, to trust in Christ, and to desire to obey your commands. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.